from Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dan. Let me pray, and we'll look eventually at Revelation 22. Lord, in in some ways we celebrate resurrection every single Sunday in the gospel. It is good this day, though, to step back and think of, Jesus, what you've actually done, not just for us, but by implication for this world. Holy Spirit, help us now in our frailty, uh, frailty of understanding, frailty of communication, that in spite of our frailty, would you make yourself known in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Revelation 22. A few years ago, I was reading an article in the Atlantic Monthly magazine by the author David Hadou, and he was writing just about a time where he's coming home from work one day, and he stopped in at a jazz club in New York City called the Village Vanguard, which was a kind of a, a club that had resisted commercialization. It was known for depth of local talent. A lot of people would show up. If you like jazz music, come in, listen to some jazz. Hadou was on his way home from a long day, went into the Village Vanguard just to hear some jazz music, sat in the back, nursing a drink, he took out his reporter's pad, his journalist pad, and was writing down some things of the day, some task lists, to-do lists. And as people were playing, he was enjoying the music, and he noticed up to the, uh, on the stage to his right a man that kind of looked familiar to him from years before, but looked like an a little bit older and heavier and more tired version of a, a famous person he had met uh, many moons ago. And that person was Wynton Marsalis. And if you're in the jazz world, you realize that name is iconic. It's, uh, he, he is jazz for a whole generation. But it wouldn't have been Marsalis because it was a small club and there was no alert, you know, there was no news of Wynton Marsalis coming. It would have been packed. And so he kept, you know, listening to the music. And finally... This guy, he was sitting off to the right, got up, came to the microphone, lifted his trumpet, and David Hadou wrote that within two or three notes, 
Everybody there was transfixed and knew that they were in the presence of greatness. It was, in fact, Winton Marsalis who had shown up at the village vanguard unannounced. And he said the crowd was immediately motionless, transfixed. They knew they were in the presence of magic. And he said he took out his pen and wrote on his notepad, magic. And he played for a couple of hours, and, and um, Hadou re- recorded his thoughts. And people were still and listening, amazed. And he, after a while, he play, was playing his last song, and the entire building was with him. He was coming down to the end of this song, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance Without You. And in the very last line, he was finishing, I don't stand a ghost of a, a cell phone rang loudly. And then it rang again and again. And the, the guy who answered the phone after fumbling with it for whatever reason didn't just push the button to stop it ringing. He answered the phone on the way out the door. And he wrote, at that time, he wrote, Magic Ruined. Said Marsalis had lost the crowd. And people began to shuffle around and move their chairs and pick up their drinks. Uh, And that was what was written across his page, Magic Ruined. In many ways, we could take a pen and write across the third chapter of Genesis in the Bible, the words, Magic Ruined. Genesis 1 and 2 we could say it is magic. Now, we don't mean it's unbelievable, but it is magical. The way the Lord describes it is this. It is good. Creation. It is good. 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 And then he comes to the creation, the pinnacle of creation, man and woman in his image, and he says, it is very good. And then he, he takes Adam and Eve and places them in a garden, the Garden of Eden. And their task is to extend the borders of that garden to fill the whole earth and multiply and fill that garden that now fills the whole earth with people. But by Genesis 3, something has happened. Adam and Eve have distrusted their creator God. They've broken covenant with him. They've rebelled against him. They've ushered sin into the garden and into the world and that magical reality has been ruined and they are exiled from the garden. They are cut off from the garden and sin permeates our world and as Taylor said at our Good Friday service, that doctrine of sin is the most empirically verifiable doctrine we have. We can look around our world and see it everywhere after we look inside and see it everywhere. It's real. That garden was lost. We've been looking at Revelation now for five months, and we're in Revelation 22, the the last chapter. Last week we looked at Revelation 21. This week, Revelation 22. Many will have noticed, perhaps you haven't, but here's what you can notice, that the garden that was lost, the garden in the beginning in Revelation, sorry, in the beginning at Genesis 1 and 2, which was lost in Genesis 3, is back in Revelation 21 and 22. It is the bookends of the Bible. The garden that was was lost. That garden is back now in an escalated glory. In Genesis, we have a garden that was supposed to grow to the ends of the earth and be filled with people. Lo and behold, in Revelation 21, we see a new heavens and a new earth, and that new heavens and new earth is a city that now we see in Revelation 22 is a garden. It's a garden city that fills the whole earth just like Eden was supposed to become. 
In Genesis 2, right, with the garden, it says there's a river. This is on the back of your insert. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There was a river there. In Genesis 2 also, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And in Genesis 3, after sin, God curses the ground. That all happens in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And then in Genesis, or, I'm sorry, in Revelation 21 and 22, what do we have? We have a garden city that fills the whole earth that's filled with people. There's a river there. There's a tree there. And there's no more curse. It's the end. God finishes what the people could not begin. What was lost in the garden is regained at the end of Revelation. How do we get there? One word answer, appropriate to today. That word answer, one word answer is Resurrection resurrection in that the world gets resurrected as well and so before we look at revelation 22 and we will get there i want to do a little bit of theology with us and drawing on some some strands that are all the way through the scripture around this idea of resurrection christ on the third day after being crucified was dead and buried God breathed new life into him by his spirit. Christ broke the power of death, walked out of the tomb, resurrection. Here's what 1 Corinthians 15 says about that. And I put these, there, there are several passages here, so I'm running the risk of losing you, but I'm going to try to trace this thread that goes through here into Revelation 22. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is having an imaginary dialogue in, in, in written form. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is, those who have been, will be made alive, will be made alive in Christ. Jesus is called here the first fruits of the resurrection. That's not a common phrase to us. First fruits is an agrarian metaphor for the first fruit of a crop that comes up. It's the first part of the same harvest. I grew up, it was really fun where I grew up. You could look in any direction and see tens of thousands of acres of cornfield, and that's all you could see, right? Bushnell, Illinois, yeehaw, corn everywhere. Where you didn't see soybeans, there was corn, and vice versa. And so... Uh, everywhere around, maybe the third week of March, all the farmers would be planting the fields, and they would harvest that field uh, in the fall sometime. But sometime in the early summer, you would see the beginnings of corn coming up. That beginnings of corn was called the first fruits of the same crop. That whole crop would be harvested at once, the same crop, but some fruit, some corn would come up first. Those are called the first fruits of the harvest, but it's all the same harvest. Jesus being called, being called the first fruits of the resurrection is communicating something. He just went first. But our resurrection, if you're in Christ, your resurrection is connected to Jesus' resurrection. In fact, we could say, if you're in Christ by faith, your future bodily resurrection is as guaranteed as Jesus' past bodily resurrection because it's connected to the same harvest. You might say, well, how can you? It's not guaranteed. It's a certainty. Yeah, that's the point. Because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, you and I, those in Christ, must be resurrected from the dead or his resurrection is not real. And so I want to be clear here. I've been talking about being in Christ what I mean by that is if you are one who we would say receives and rests in Jesus alone for salvation because of his work on the cross 
and nothing else that you have done, do, do, will do, unto a life that's surrendered to him, not perfectly, but legitimately, right? If you're looking to Christ as a Savior because of what he has done on the cross, not because of what you can do, have done, will do, unto a life that's surrendered to him, this is what we're talking about. Whether you had a time in your life where you said, I didn't believe and now I do believe, or maybe you've kind of always believed that, that's fine. I don't care how it happened. Like the question is, what is real now? If you look to Christ and trust in him, this is what we mean by being united to Christ. You, you look to Christ and you're bound to him by the Holy Spirit of the living God. And there, therefore, your future resurrection is guaranteed. But in an important way, it's actually already begun. And that's how the scripture talks about it. Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. So what this is saying is that spiritually, if you're in Christ, you're already resurrected with Christ. You've been raised with him. You're seated with him in a real and profound way. Another way to say this is a Christian will never be more spiritually resurrected with Christ than he or she already is. You, if you're in Christ, will never be more spiritually resurrected with Christ than you already are. Now the fullness of that experience in our body is yet to come and in our Full experience is yet to come. We talked about this last week. We have this aspect of being already something and not yet something. You're already spiritually raised with Christ. Not yet has that full experience come into your sphere of existence. This union with Christ then, I know we're in the weeds here. Just keep following me just for a second. Um, This union with Jesus in his resurrection brings about a profound newness in our life. And that's exactly how things are described. If you'll skip over Romans 8 for a second, look at 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Your translations might say he is a new creation or she is a new creation. That's not in the Greek. I'm just giving you a literal translation here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, boom, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if you're in Christ, we already share in a new creation. We we break up history in a way that's B.C., A.D., you know, before Christ or Anno Domini in the year of our Lord, you know, around the birth of Christ. More secular people want to do B.C.E. and C.E., which means the same thing. I don't know. Didn't get Jesus out of it just by changing the, the, uh, the letters. But that is okay. That's actually not how Scripture breaks up history. I don't know if you knew that. There is an old and new in Scripture, but it's not before and after the birth of Christ. We can still do that. That's fine. Whatever. Um, When Jesus, God himself, when Jesus Christ breaks the power of death and walks out of the tomb on Sunday morning, that's when Scripture says new creation has begun. That's the explosion that happens, the echo of which echoes through history, of which Revelation 21 and 22 are an inevitable consequence of these things, but they're not the thing itself. The thing is the resurrection of Jesus. The consequence is resurrection for you now spiritually, eventually physically, and eventually the worldwide restoration of all things because of the resurrection of Christ. This newness 
is also how the Bible speaks about the world, but without the sort of already not yet aspect. Revelation 21. We looked at this last week. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, just like new creation for the people in 2 Corinthians 5. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The same thing. We, if you're in Christ, new creation, the old has passed away. And then in the future, John says, I see this picture of a new heaven and a new earth for the old has passed away. It's the same exact language in English and Greek and everything. It's the same, the same stuff. We're not the only beneficiaries of Christ's resurrection. The world eventually gets resurrected as well. And then that's what Romans 8 told us. Dan read it for you. But now you have context maybe to hear it afresh. Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now that's probably Adam. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That would be full and final redemption. So creation is waiting, waiting for the, for the not yet in our life to become real. Then it too is restored. That's all being brought along by the resurrection of Jesus. So, so you don't miss it. I put it in red at the top of your insert. The idea here, and I realize it's big, lots of threads coming together. Sorry if I lost you, but we come back now. The resurrection of Jesus brings forth, brings with it, the resurrection of Jesus' people and the resurrection of Jesus' world. In that order. This means for those in Christ now, we get to live as those who taste resurrection in the midst of a world that desperately needs it. We get to live as those who taste resurrection in the middle of a world that desperately needs it. And I refer you to back to last week, this concept of already tasting something that's not yet full to our experience, right? That's where we live right now. We see a picture of where it's going and we taste that already hints of that all the ingredients of that and what we're going to look at here in revelation 22 i know that's a record long introduction for a sermon but we're not going to spend much time in revelation 22 much time but we're gonna we'll get through it don't worry it's gonna be shorter than the heaven um what we're seeing are these things are glorifying to god because they highlight what he's done for us by uniting us to Jesus. They're good for us, as will become evident, and they're good for this world because it is a living invitation to others into what could be. Last, year, last week, we used the illustration of being a, a, a foretaste of coming attraction by being a movie trailer. Like we said, you're a movie trailer for the coming movie. A movie trailer is a little snippet of something that's real. It's incomplete. It's kind of out of context. It's kind of janky sometimes. But ideally, somebody sees it and says, I want to see the whole thing. Ideally, as we embody that, that already, that, that what we're tasting of, ideally, God works by others seeing that and saying, you know what? It ain't perfect, but I'd like to see the whole thing. Right? Let's look at Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, 
bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. The first thing we see here is that we taste now of a life that is and is to come fully in the restoration of all things. First thing's front and center is the throne of God and, strangely, of the Lamb. Jesus is pictured as a lion and a lamb in Revelation, and maybe you would think on a throne he's pictured as a lion, his power and authority and ability, but actually this is the throne of the lamb. The lamb in Revelation is a picture of Jesus' sacrifice, his self-giving love, his life-laying-down love, and so what you have front and center in this picture is his, both his authority and his self-giving sacrifice for his people the throne of God and of the Lamb. We don't want to separate those two, his authority and his sacrifice. And from that flows a river that, that goes through the middle of this city. And so think about it. The city is big, right? It fills John's vision, Revelation 21, is, it's filling the earth. So new heavens and new earth is the city. And this river goes through the middle of the city. It's a big river, <laughs> or a really long one or something. It's a, the picture is a huge river. And, of course, these are images. Revelation is a, you know, sim, symbols and images meant to communicate multi-layered things to us. So the, the point is, like, this is a massive river that gives all kind of life to this city. That's the most, it's an evident thing in the new earth. There's been a river running through the entire Bible. In Genesis 2, Genesis 2, 9, there's a river that flows from Eden that waters the garden. Joel picks it up. The prophet Joel picks it up. Zechariah picks it up, the prophet. And the psalmist in Psalm 46, 5, in this famous part says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. A couple years ago, we looked at Ezekiel 47, which is this classic prophecy, prophecy, uh, prophecy of the future where there's a picture of a river that comes from the place of sacrifice in the temple. And the longer it goes in history, the deeper it gets, the more powerful it gets, and it touches dead things and makes them alive as a picture of what this river will do. But this river shrouded in mystery. What is it? It shows up here. What is this river? Nobody knows until Jesus tells us in John 7. Turn on the back of your bulletin, of your insert to John 7. On the last and great day of the feast, the last day of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, <clears throat> the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, and that verbal construction is believes and keeps believing. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the river. About the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This picture of this life-giving river is none other than the Spirit of the living God, the life-giving presence in the new creation that is evident for all to see. Here's a remarkable thing. Jesus has been glorified. The Spirit has been given. If you're in Christ, this Spirit dwells in you and in us. The same Spirit. It's unbelievable. What does it look like to 
be satisfied with this spirit. Well, Jesus tells us, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Talking about the spirit, how does that work? Well, believe and keep believing. Trust and keep trusting. That's how this works. It's very pedestrian. We trust Christ, and then we trust him again and again and again and again. What does that look like? Yesterday, one of my daughters ran in the Carmel Half Marathon, Rebecca. Um, you might have guessed that. It was not Liz, who's like almost you know, giving birth any day. She's amazing, but not that amazing. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so we went up there, and it's in Carmel. So they got half the streets blocked off, and half the people in Carmel didn't know that, and they're trying to do their more normal Saturday morning stuff. So there's traffic backed up everywhere, and streets are one way and blocked off, and downtown Carmel's blocked off. Oh, my gosh. So we saw the, the map, and we found we can see Re- Rebecca at the nine-mile marker because there's a, there's a parking lot there of a church we're aware of. We got there. And, you know, when you watch a marathon or half marathon, you see them for like 10 seconds. They like run by, hi, and then you're pretty much done, right? So they run for like two hours. You see them for 10 seconds. That's the morning. So we saw her at, nine, at the nine-mile mark, and then my wife, Carmen, says, we can see her again at 11, at the 11-mile mark. Like, I've been married long enough to know that's a good idea. You know, I was like, this is good. This is our daughter. So um, the efficiency person in me is like, well, I don't know. But so, um, so we get in the car. We're going to try to, you know, you know she's running. So it's, it's the nine-mile mark, 11-mile mark. We've only got a couple minutes, right? Well, a few minutes. But, but we, the, all the traffic is backed up. The streets are cut off. We don't, there's police everywhere. How do we get from this place in Carmel to this place in Carmel? And I've really been in Carmel for 20 years. I don't really, then all things are different up there now. And so we jump in the car, and there's a problem with my Bluetooth and our Honda Pilot, there's a delay. So it's impossible to follow. The, and something was going on with Carmen's, the, the, the voice wasn't on, so she's just going to give me turn-by-turn instructions. Right? It's good. So the first step is I must trust her to do that. Would I trust her to do that? Of course. She's, it happens all the time. Not a big deal. We're going to leave the parking lot and trust that she's going to direct us to this reality. There's an initial trust, right? And we're turning across stop traffic lanes and she can see and I can't see. She's like, there's nobody coming. You can go. Okay, we'll go. I'll trust her. And then it's like, turn right, turn left, the roundabout, take the third, you know, and turn right and turn left and all this kind of stuff. I'm just like, trust her initially that she will do that. But then there's this turn by turn instructions you have to trust. What does it look like to trust and keep trusting in Jesus? We trust him, yes. And then, if you lend me a little artistic license, turn-by-turn instructions, day in, day out, simple, repeated, sought-out, honest, wrestling, imperfect, always correcting trust. We're turning with him, moving with him over and over again. Now, as you get older, do the stakes get higher? Yes, they do. Are you trusting him with more of your life? You are. More of your finances? You are. More of your children? You are. More of your future? You are. Every year, the stakes get, ty- get higher and higher and higher, and he's never untrustworthy. What does it look like to live this life in the Spirit? Simple pedestrian trust day in, day out, day in, day out. In that way, the river flows in us and through us. Continuing on, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing 
of the nations. We experience a healing that is and is to come fully. Now, there was a tree of life in the garden. And I'm not sure how all this worked out, but the, the narrative is that after the curse, the tree of life became a danger to Adam and Eve, lest they eat from it and live forever in their cursed state. Not sure how all that works together, but here the tree of life is not a danger. In fact, it's a source of healing and life. Healing for the nations. It says it's on either side of the river. There's an interpretation question here like, what does that mean? How is a tree on both sides of a river? Is it a really big tree? You know, in the Redwood Forest we visited a couple years ago, there's a tree called the Klamath tree. You can drive through it. It's that big. You can drive your mini. We drove our minivan straight through the tree. There's a road, a paved road that goes through the tree. The tree doesn't care. It's huge. They just go right through it. I don't know if that's what it means. Or some people, and I probably more likely this, the tree of life is now in this escalated reality, multiple trees, a grove of trees. And as the trees are, in, in most languages, a collection of trees are a singular collective noun. So like we say, a, maple, a bunch of maple trees in a grove is called a maple grove, not a maple's grove. A bunch of beech trees in a grove, we're not called a beech's grove, it's called a beech grove, right? Right in our backyard here, beech grove. I don't really know. Um, not really sure why I threw that in there other than beech grove seemed cool, uh, appropriate right here. Anyway. Um, Twelve types of fruit each month in the Jewish calendar, as in the Roman calendar, as our calendar, 12 months. Twelve types of fruit, 12 months. We've seen this 12 times 12 or 12 plus 12 formula in Revelation before. Every other time it's reminded us to look back to the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples bringing the Old Testament and the New Testament people to, to, of God together into one family. This tree is, has leaves for the healing of the nations. Certainly that is the healing of sin in Revelation given the direction of Revelation. And nations aren't like political nations like Canada and Argentina, America, Ukraine. It's peoples. Peoples. So the picture here is eternal, permanent nourishment from God that brings healing uh, from sin to people from all nations. That heals the alienation, the vertical alienation between them and God and them and each other. That's the picture here. Now, the, interestingly, the Eastern Orthodox Church has always seen a connection between the tree of life and the cross of Christ. I don't know. I can't go there. My interpretation won't let me go that far, but it's interesting, right? Uh, the cross is often called a tree. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. It becomes a tree of life to God's people. I don't know. Um, I do know we taste the healing now. One... You are the nations. <laughs> we are already the nations, unless anybody here is purely Jewish descent, which is impossible to trace at this point anyway. We're the nations. And if you're in Christ, that healing has begun. You have been healed from the penalty of sin in Christ. By virtue of the resurrection, you are being healed from the power of sin. It doesn't have unchecked power over our life anymore. And by God's grace, and because of the resurrection, one day we will be healed from the presence of sin. That healing we taste of right now in, envision, in, in view of the time where it's a complete healing for people from all nations. And I mentioned this last week, but this is such good news for us who live in such a tribalized world. 
a world that just declares there's all these things that should and must divide people. Things like income level or the amount of melanin in your skin or the language you speak or what your ancestors did or what side of an imaginary geographical line you were happen to be born on. You know, most of us here were born in America, the greatest economy in the history of the world. Good job, y'all. You did good. You were really smart to be born in America, right? It was totally accidental, totally providential. You had nothing to do with where you were born. And somehow we live in a world that says, yes, but people who also had nothing to do with where they were born on another side of a barrier, we should be against them. It's stupid. I don't understand. But it's not going to stop, right? This is what people are. Right? We live in a world that says we should divide up lines because of these things. Even if we don't understand it, it doesn't change the fact that it's not going to stop. But in Christ, we know something. In the body of Christ, it does not. In fact, it must not be this way. We are united by something older, deeper, longer, stronger. Several of you met Joy and Salim. John prayed for them. They were here last summer from North Africa. I went with a to, with Salim to a pastor's gathering uh, one of the times he was here talking to him in the car and it just struck me in that moment we're different there's a lot of there's a lot of differences between us that should divide us right he is born in one hemisphere I'm born in another he is dark-skinned man I'm a pasty white boy from the cornfields of Illinois I speak one language Mostly, you know, and he speaks like 12, right? All these things should divide us, but the, the reality is, and this is true for lots and lots of people in the body of Christ, right? There's something that unites us that's deeper, that's older, that's stronger, that's far more valuable than those things that the world said, no, that should divide you. No, the body of Christ, we are united by God himself. And as we said last week, we're going to press into that. The world needs to see what it could be in the resurrection, in the body of Christ, laying down our preferences in life to love across things the world calls barriers for the sake of Christ because it tells the truth about where the world is going. That is the calling of God's people. And it's a privilege we have right now. We, are, we have connection to a power like that. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This is a security that is right now and will come full later. In the restoration of all things, nothing is cursed. All the effects of sin are removed and everything infected by sin is either healed or taken away. We will worship him, it says. Because we will see him as he is. We will have a rightly ordered relationship with him. Now, again, this is an image, right? I'm, we're not envisioning here an eternal worship service. That's, I realize sometimes that gets communicated, like heaven's an eternal worship service. I don't know where that comes from. This is a rightly ordered life of worship before God. And we, we live in the restoration of all things, in a rightly ordered relationship to God. We will see his face, it says. This signifies intimacy and personal knowledge. If you remember back in Exodus, Moses said, Lord, I want to see your face. And God said, unfortunately, you would not survive that experience. It would, it would take you out. So he protects him from seeing his face. 
in the restoration of all things, we see his face. Whatever that is, I don't know. It was a deeply personal, deeply intimate reality that we only can begin to imagine right now. This is where things are headed. What about now? Well, we taste of this same reality now. The role of the Holy Spirit in our life accomplishes this. In him we are sealed. That's the same language around uh, that mark on the forehead. It's a sealing of God by the Holy Spirit. This same Spirit cries out in our heart, according to Galatians 4 and Romans 8, Abba, Father. It's, so why? It says the Spirit is actually working this desire in our heart to know God as Father. Abba, Father. And he invites us to join our voices, our actual voices in prayer with this reality. Lord, I want to know you as Father. I want to know you more deeply as Father. There's a very personal reason for that. There are five people, and that word Abba, Father, means dad, basically. It's like a little bit more intimate than father. It's not daddy. It's dad, right? There are five people in my life that can call me dad. There are very personal reasons for that. They're my children, and I am their father. There's a very personal reason the Spirit of God works in our heart heart to cry out, Dad. Because we have been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God because of the work of Jesus. It's a very personal reality. And it brings a deep security, that that indelible mark on our foreheads. I don't think we're going to actually have a mark on our foreheads. Again, these are images, sign of identity and solidity. We now, we know what secures us now. We taste of that now in anticipation of fullness coming. Security is an important thing to us. In December of 2022, over 50% of Americans said they were either afraid or very afraid of the following 10 things. So over 50% were afraid or very afraid. So, you know, maybe 50% of us here. Number one, corrupt government officials, afraid or very afraid. People I love becoming seriously ill, Russia using nuclear weapons, people I love dying, the U.S. becoming involved in another world war, pollution of drinking water, not having enough money for the future, economic or financial collapse, pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes, and number 10, biological warfare. Over 50% of Americans said they were afraid or very afraid of that. Do you know why so many people say they're afraid or very afraid of that? Because they're real possibilities. All of them. And being afraid is a reasonable response to things that would attack our security. Guys, in Christ, we taste a security that cannot be removed. Even if any of those things happen, even if all of those things happen, we have a security that endures to eternity that we get to taste of right now. Trust. Keep trusting. Verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The last thing we see here is a partnership, and a certain kind of partnership. Now, what is this whole reign for him with ever? Reign with him forever? I have no clue. I don't know. Um, it's some partnership of some kind shepherding this new earth. I have no idea what he means there in the fullness of it. Uh, Right now, that partnership looks like living as a foretaste of the coming kingdom. Loving our neighbor, 
loving one another, laying down our lives for each other, praying his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and asking him to work through that, trusting him turn by turn by turn. I want to look at this one phrase in closing. The Lord God will be their light. Now, in your insert, I separated verse 4 and 5. Not that they're, they're not separated in the original, of course. In fact, there are no verse numbers in the original. So I want you to see that it will go right from they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will, not, they will need no light or, or of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light connected to that face. Here's what I think is happening. The Lord will be their light and that light is a particular kind. Not just like God is glowing and bright. Oh, maybe, maybe that's the case too, I don't know. I think this is talking about this biblical phrase, the light of his face. The light of his countenance is so bright and overwhelming, it fills the reality of everything. The light of God's countenance for his people, which means his favor all the way through the Old Testament. Let, and so when they say, let your light shine on us, let the light of your face shine upon us, the people in the Old Testament are saying, may your favor shine upon us, Lord. May your favor shine upon us. Just hear some of these, okay? Number six, we often use this as a benediction as we're sending you out. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. May his tender countenance shine on you and be his favor overflow you. Psalm 4, many, Lord, are asking who will bring us prosperity. Let the light of your face shine upon us. Psalm 31, let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. Psalm 80, restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Psalm 119, make your face shine on your servant. Teach me your decrees and others. Lord, shine on us. Make your face shine on us. Make your countenance shine on us. May your face shine on us over and over and over again. And in Revelation 22, what do we have? yes forever and ever and ever it's the most glorious overwhelming reality to you my face is shining upon you friends it's no different today we just don't experience it we don't see it but his face is no less satisfied with his people because of the work of Jesus if you're in him your his face is shining upon you and it will one day be made so real to our experience it cannot be denied of course he says yes. That's why things didn't end in the garden. On that fateful day when Adam and Eve broke covenant with God and the words magic ruined were written over the page of Genesis 3, he entered back in. And so as not to leave you hanging, David Hadou writes this. So there stands Wynton Marsalis as his masterpiece, his magic had been ruined. And here's what he said happened next. Remember the cell phone is rang. Everybody lost concentration. Marsalis paused for a beat, motionless, and his eyebrows arched. Still frozen at the microphone, Marsalis replayed the silly cell phone melody note for note. Then he repeated it and began improvising variations on the tune. 
The audience slowly came back to him. In a few minutes, he resolved the improvisation, which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down to a ballad tempo and then ended up exactly where he had left off. I don't stand a ghost of a chance without you. And he said the ovation was tremendous. Marsalis entered back in through that very broken magic, that very place, and went back in to his creation to fix it, to bring it back where it was. Sin curses our world, and Jesus Christ enters in through that door itself, taking the effects of sin on his shoulders on Good Friday. But he doesn't just bring it back to where it was. He escalates it in glory. And that's what we have in Revelation 22, the resurrection of our world in more glory than it was before. And in you and I, if in Christ, in more glory than we were before. So he walks out of that tomb on a morning like this, on Easter morning, and brings with it new creation that you get to taste now, if in Christ. Tasting a resurrection in the world that desperately needs it. This is challenging, we know this. One of the ways Jesus nourishes us now with an anticipation of full nourishment to come is the table, whereby he personally communicates his mercy and grace to us through his spirit as we take the bread and the cup. If you're in Christ by faith, if you're united to Jesus, I want to invite you to come to the table. I'm going to pray, and then after.